You are now listening to the Till Room Scleroderma Awareness Podcast. I am your host, Natasha M. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to TR Family. It's your girl, Tasha. Yes, this week is about me and my journey with scleroderma. So, I am going to introduce myself first, give you a little bit of history about me. And then I'll jump right into my story. Um, Before we get started, I just want to say thanks for everybody who shared my podcast. And for all the feedback, because I really do appreciate it. And let's just have some fun tonight. Now, most of you know I'm a little extra sometimes. So today's going to be a good show. I am... From Germantown, but a lot of people believe I'm from Upper Derby. So, yeah, I spent a lot of my time in Upper Derby. I have two beautiful kids, boys. Yeah. And this is my story. So, I was working for a company that dealt with children and adults with disabilities. I was hyped to get this job. I was real hyped and I got hired. But before I got hired, I had told my boss, I said, you know, I got a Disney trip coming up. I got some other things that I already had planned. So, you know, once I go on vacation, I'll come back and I'll start work. So, I went to Disney and the first day we got there, we walked into the parks and my legs just completely gave out like it was like sore I couldn't hardly walk anymore so we got a um a scooter and that's what I did the rest of the trip my legs were really sore I couldn't walk it was hard to just like get up and do anything so that was the first sign of something being wrong when I came back from my trip I was going to my doctor just complaining about um breathing because I was having trouble breathing going up and down the steps in my house um and then I started having this color change all over my chest now I usually I had it before I had it on my eyes like my eyes like a little piece of my eyelids sometimes on my face but it always came and, and went away so I never really expected it to go all over my chest and you know, all on my arms and stuff. But it did. So I went to the doctor and I'm like, you know, this is happening, this is happening. And then she was just like, you know, let's run tests and see what is going on. And maybe like a week or two later, I went to the, I went to my job and I'm going to the bathroom and I go to get up and I couldn't get up. I fell. I fell back down to the back, into the toilet and broke the back of the toilet. I know it's not funny, but it's funny now because it's over with. But at the time, I was embarrassed. So, I fell into the toilet. I fell back into the toilet and the toilet, back of the toilet broke. I was embarrassed. They had to send everybody out to come fix it and everything. So, I tell my doctor, I'm like, hey, this happened. And she's like, okay, we got to figure out what is going on. So, she sent me for a CT scan. And I go to get my CT scan, and as soon as I get there, they're like, okay, well, come in the back, 
and we're going to take some um, blood pressure and make sure everything is right and then we'll start the scan. And they're like, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. They're like, okay, well, your blood pressure is really high. So we wanted to, you know, maybe give you some water, let you sit for a minute, and then, you know, we'll do it again and make sure we can move on with the CT scan. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm like, but I just got off work. I do have high blood pressure, and um, I haven't took my medicine. So they're like, okay. So I waited about a good 15 minutes, and they came back out. They're like, you know, something's not right. So the next thing I know, there's an ambulance in the front, and I'm looking crazy. So they transferred me over to a neighborhood hospital, and I stayed there for about four days. They ran some tests, and there was nothing, nothing. So they're like, you know, we can't find anything, so we want to try to send you to another hospital, which is Temple. And they should be able to help you and see what's going on. So I was transferred to Temple. And for the first couple of days, they did some tests. And they were like, okay, we think it could be Cushing's disease or it could be um, lupus. So I'm like, okay, lupus, I can probably see that because my grandma had lupus. Well, she was misdiagnosed with lupus. Um. And I see, like, the pain that she was going through when I was younger. So, I'm like, this could be what it is. So, I'm like, okay, let's just jump on this bandwagon. I have lupus. Let's try to figure out how to fix it. Um, Then they came back, and they were like, hey, we're going to let you go tomorrow. But we wanted to do one more test to see, to make sure that it can't be nothing else. We want to rule out everything. So, the next morning, I went down. I got a right heart catheterization. And I came back, and they gave me a book, and it was like, hey, we did a test, and it says that you have scleroderma. So I'm like, scleroderma? I don't know what that is. And they didn't really say much. They didn't really explain to me what it was. They just gave me a big, um, like, a, like a, a folder, and it had information about scleroderma and all those other things. So at that time, I was going through a lot in my life. Like, I was... Living in a house that I didn't want to be in anymore. Um, like, it was a lot. So, I kind of put it on the back burner. Like, I wasn't really too worried about it. Um, like I said, before they took me to the hospital, I wasn't in any, I wasn't, like, in any pain or anything. And I wasn't, um, like, besides the breathing, I was already dealing with that. So, it was like, Okay, I've been going through this. So it was nothing new, nothing that was like that had changed that made me feel like, okay, now I need to, you know, get some help. So that was in 2014. So that's when I was diagnosed, 2014. Um, I wound up moving out of Upper Darby and I was out there for a year and I did see some doctors because I was having like my start almost started really really progressing like I went from being able to walk in a parade to not being able to go to the bathroom without breathing super super heavy and like my 
my hands and started to my skin started to get tight so like my hands became unusable like I can't I couldn't use a fork I couldn't fix my hair um it was hard for me to like grab a wash rag like to wring it out so a lot was changing within that year but this is why I say I started the podcast because some people don't have support. Within that year, I really, I seen how Slater was taking over my life, but I couldn't really feel it because my husband literally became my caregiver. He did everything for me. So, yeah, I couldn't do my hair, but it didn't really affect me because he started to learn. You know, I always did my own hair or I went to the shop. But then it was like, okay, let me help you. And anytime that I just, whatever I couldn't do, he did it for me. So it was like, I really didn't see, oh, I can't do this. Because it was like, okay, let me just help you. you And no need for you to go through this pain. Let me do it. Let's get it done. Blah, blah, blah. So for that year, a lot was happening. A lot was changing. And he didn't allow me to see it. Like, he didn't allow me to really fully go through that because he was there helping. And I really do appreciate that because I don't know what I would have done had it not been for him. So, to my husband, I thank you. I know sometimes it may seem like... um. I'm the only one with the illness, but you and the kids, you've definitely been a very good support system, and I really do appreciate it. So, after my year out there, I was able to move back to Maryland to be closer to family. I moved to Maryland, and I finally decided to, um, you know, get some type of help. Because I was in and out of the hospital so much. When I got to Maryland, I was like in for a week, home for a few days. Back in for a week, home for a few days. So I went to the doctors and, you know, they were like, okay, well, we can't help you here at this hospital. So we're going to send you to University of Maryland. I'm like, okay. So they flew me over to University of Maryland. I got there. And as soon as I got there, they took me into surgery. They did a, they shocked my heart first. And they did a right heart catheterization. And they were like, you know, this is how we're going to start the process. I was there for a good while. Um, Once they figured out what was going on, they're like, okay, listen, you have scleroderma. Have you ever been told that? I'm like, yeah, I've been told that, but I haven't gotten any help. And this is where I met my uh, cardiologist, which is like, the best doctor ever, Dr. Romani at University of Maryland. He came in a room and he's like, look, you're young. You have a lot going on and we want to try to help you. So at that time, I was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension. I was diagnosed with scleroderma, AFib, and Afibrillation, there are like two different things, but I thought they were the same. And then I was diagnosed with hypertension also. So 
we started talking about medicines to help and what they can do to help me. So, as far as medicines, they had put me on a medicine called microphenolate and uh, dofentilide, which were, I guess, supposed to, you know, help with the scleroderma and everything. So, another doctor come in and she says, hey, we want to have a talk with you um, about, you know, another medication that we, that we feel like can help you. So, she came in and she said, um, we have a trial medicine, which is called Ambrosentin, A-M-B-R-I-S-E-N-T-A-N, Ambrosentin. And it's a trial medicine. Um, we wanted to put you on, but there are risks with you going on this medicine. So I'm like, okay. And I was okay with everything. Cause I'm, at this point, I'm like, I'm trying to be in the hospital. Let's just get it together, period. And then the bad news comes. They're like, oh, well, once you go on this medicine, you have to have two types of birth control. Um, and, you know, you'll never be able to have more kids, and that was it. I started crying because, Lord knows, I've been begging my husband for another baby. I wanted a daughter so bad. I have two boys, so I wanted a daughter so bad. And I was just getting to the point where I could get my husband to say, yeah, let's go ahead and have one more. Even though it was like, yeah, we can have another baby, but it wasn't like, okay, let's just go for it. So I was devastated. I started crying. I was just like, no, I don't want to do this medicine. If I have to tell myself you can't have another baby, I don't want to do the medicine. So they um they called on my course. He came to the hospital and they talked to us and he was just like, you know, come on and you can probably down the line, you know, maybe have a baby. But right now we need to be able to still have you here in order for you to even try to have a baby. So my doctor, the other doctor, and my husband talked me into getting the medicine and I did. Um, I started all of this in 2015, I started it. Um... And I was just like, I don't want to not have a baby. I want my baby. Like, I can't. So, long story short, the medicine, I feel as though it helped me for as far as my scleroderma. Like, it slowed down some of the process. But I think my biggest issue had not occurred yet. So, we going through it and I start the medicine and everything's going fine. Everything was great. Um, I still was having other troubles. So, from 2015 to 2019, the biggest problem I had was my heart racing. So, my heart beats double the time. I can't explain it, but it's like, It's like uh, a normal heartbeat. It's like bump, bump, bump. And mine's just like bump, 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 It's a mess. It's just a lot. So I was in and out of hospital a lot for that reason as far as scleroderma. My heart was 
giving me trouble. So, in 2019, November, I had already been dealing with AFib. So, I know when my heart goes into AFib. And it usually takes like a couple of days to come out of it. Sometimes it takes minutes. But this time, it was like in it and it wasn't coming out. So, I go to the doctors. I mean, I go to the hospital. The ambulance come. And, um, you know, where I live, I live in the middle um, of Maryland and Delaware. So, when the ambulance come, it just depends on how they feel where they'll take me. So, sometimes they'll take me to Maryland and then sometimes they'll take me to Delaware. So, I go and I get in the ambulance and take me to Maryland. And this hospital is a lot. <laughs> but I'm considered a hard stick. So, getting blood, getting an IV and all that stuff in, it takes a lot. So, they were, they were unable to do it. So, now I'm full of better. And I got in the ambulance came. My heart was in AFib. They took me to the hospital. I'm there for a few hours. Now my heart is out of AFib. So, it's like, okay, y'all can't get an IV. Okay, I'm going home. I get home. It starts all over again. I wait a few days. I'm like, okay, let me wait till the weekend, you know. And the kids will be out of school. My husband will be home. I can then go to the hospital. And if they keep me for a few days, I'll be good. Sure enough, I get the ambulance to come again. And they're like, okay, well, we have to transfer you to um, another. I was in Delaware, in the Delaware hospital. But they have like a small hospital, a big hospital. So they transferred me to the big hospital. Nothing. I was there for about a week. Nothing happened. Fine. I come home. It's Thanksgiving. I'm on an oxygen machine. It was a lot. It was just hectic. <laughs> so I waited it out. Um, the AFib was still there, but it wasn't as bad. Um, so December comes around. And my oldest son was on a band at school. So I had to go to the concert. But I felt so bad. But I just didn't want to miss it. So I go to the concert. Feeling horrible. And this is how I can describe the pain. Well, the, the heart. It felt like somebody was holding the back of my jacket and just jerking me back and forth. Um, if you looked at my chest, you could see that I'm rocking back and forth. You can see that my heart is like beating fast. And if you put your hand on my on my chest or on my back, you can feel it. So I'm like, okay. After the concert, I'm going to go home. By the time we get home, my husband will be off work. I'm going to call the ambulance. Okay, I get home. I couldn't wait. I call the ambulance. They come to my house. Destroy everything. I mean, you would have thought it was like a shootout. They had rampants everywhere. They had balls everywhere. All the trash from out their veins. They got it all over the floor. They're trying to get an IV in. They're trying to get my heart rate. Trying to see where it is. They're giving me medicine to... First, they gave me aspirin to calm it down. Then they start trying to get the IV in so they can give me a stronger medicine to slow the heart down. They're like, your heart is going too fast. We can't even move you right now because we have to get the heart rate down. When I tell you they left my house a wreck, they got the IV in. He put the IV drip 
on my curtain rod <laughs> in my living room. By the time we got done, the curtains fell, the couch is all in disarray, the pillows are everywhere, trash is everywhere. And my husband's not home yet, the kids are here, and they're like, listen, we have to go. So they get me in the, um, no, every time I get up, my heart rate shoots back up. So they try to get the, the, um, the chair inside the house, they can get me on there, take me to the, um, truck. I get in the ambulance, and they take me to Delaware. Delaware tries everything. I'm there for about four or five days. And they call my heart specialist, like, hey, we're not able to help her. What do we do now? And he's like, you know what? Send her here. Send her here, and we'll, we'll deal with it. So they said, you got until Monday. Well, you got to be here by Sunday in order for us to do what we need to do to fix it. And I'm like, okay. So I'm thinking like, okay, my husband will come to the hospital on Saturday. I'm, I'll be fine. It won't be so bad because I get depressed when I'm in a hospital. So we're at the hospital in Delaware and the nurse came in and said, well, hey, they have a bed available for you now, so we're going to transfer you tonight. Of course, my traumatic self, I start crying. I'm like, I don't want to go in. I want to stay here, blah, blah, blah. Because I knew, like, once I got to Maryland, you know, with my kids having school and being so far, going to Baltimore is a long drive for me. It's like an hour, 45 minutes from my house. So I don't like for my kids to see me in the hospital because it's a lot. My uh, my oldest son was, um, I want to say, five or six when I was diagnosed. And my youngest son was two when I was diagnosed. So my oldest son was able to see me before, before you know, the body started to act crazy. And then my youngest son, he don't really remember me before that. So all he know is this mom. And it's a lot on him, you know. When you have to, um, you know, explain to your friends why the ambulance at your house every day, or why your mom is in a wheelchair, or do your mom know how to walk, and why do your mom have a breathing machine on, or, you know, it's a lot for a child, and my youngest son, he's very emotional, so, you know, we go through a lot with him with school, because he wants to be home, like, he wants to be here, he feel like as long as he's here, I'm safe. So he doesn't like to go to school and you know, that's a big thing because when he do go to school he does a lot of crying and it's like they think it's something's wrong with him and on actuality he just wants to be here to make sure that I'm okay. So it's a lot for a kid. But back to the story. Um I get transferred to University of Maryland and um at this time, my AFib is really, really bad. My heart beat was like 200 and something beats per minute, which is not good. So they had me like on a strict restriction. I couldn't get out of the bed because if I was to put my feet down on the floor and just sit up on the side of the bed, my heart rate will race. The machines will go off. Everybody will come running in. So I wasn't able to do anything besides lay there. And even with laying there, um, 
just thinking about, you know, what's going to happen next, what type of procedure they're going to do. It was definitely a lot. And that made my heart go off too. So laying there even created an issue. So Monday morning comes, the doctor comes in. He's like, listen, I know. I know you, Latasha. I know you're scared, but we're going to try to figure out what's going on. So I go down and they do a right and left heart catheterization. Um, they do the shock again because the heart just wouldn't come out of AFib. So they shocked me, shocked the heart, did a right and left heart catheterization, brought me back up. Um, they started a medicine called the Joxin, and that's to slow down your heart rate. It's supposed to help. It's supposed to be really fast, slow down your heart rate, and make keep it slow. Keep it, you know, your heart rate low. So they started me on the Joxin in the hospital with an IV, and they sent me home with all the medicines <laughs> and the Joxin. So I go home, and... I'm getting a little better. Like I'm 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 getting there. Like, you know, the breathing was still horrible, but as far as going and out of AFib, it was just like not as bad. So during this time I'm still seeing my doctor going to appointments and um we're winning for an appointment. And my doctor, he's very very open with me. If it's something I want to know, you know, even when I go with my family, they he, he asks my husband, like, do you have any questions? Do you have any concerns? Anything you want to ask me, anything you want to talk about? He even accommodates my kids, like, hey, is there anything you want to know? And sometimes with my youngest son, he listens to everything. So he had questions, and he'll answer, and he's very, you know, hey, did you guys go to Disney this year? I ain't doing any vacations. He's very, like, you know, close to my family. So when we went to the appointment, he was like, you know, I have another doctor I want you to see. He's going to come in. Is it okay with you? I'm like, sure. So the doctor come in. They call him Dr. C. He came in with two other um, students. And they looked me over, and they was like, you know, how you're breathing and everything. And I told him. And, um. One concern that they had was that most people, like, when you breathe in, your stomach goes out. You fill up your stomach, and then when you let go, you let the air out of your stomach. My stomach does the opposite, so um, that was a big concern to them. And they said they seen in certain patients, and they were just talking amongst themselves. And about a month later, I got a phone call from Dr. Romani saying, hey, I told the doctor C, and he wants to try to figure out if we can fix this AFib problem because I still was having, I was still going to the emergency room because my heart was just out of control. So, Dr. C said, okay, listen, I want to do something called a, a cardiac ablation. And the worst thing I can do is go online, like Google, and try to figure out what it is myself. So, I talked to Dr. C, me and him talked on the phone, and I just wasn't, I wasn't for the surgery. You know, with all the risk that it comes with, you know, you're out for hours. The, the surgery takes hours, four plus hours. 
and I just wasn't for it. Like, it wasn't something I was ready for. I talked to Dr. Romani. I asked him, like, you know, is there anything else we could do? He was like, you know, for your problem, you know, we have a medicine, but it's just not, you're too young for it. You'll get on it now within five years, it'll stop working, and then there'll be nothing else we can do for you. And he was like, you know, you have two young children. I think that the cardiac abrasion would be a good option for you, but, you know, there are risks. So I decided that, you know, after thinking about it for a while, that I would go with that. So I got the cardiac ablation done in October of 2020. And um, I went in and my heart rate was high before they started the surgery. And the doctor was like, you know, I wonder if you can do it when your heart rate is high. Should we wait? And then the surgeon came in and was like, no, this is great. As long as it's high, we're able to go in and see where the problem is and fix it. I go into surgery and my heart completely want to work. I mean, it wants to function right. It's like, hey, I'm back. Look, we ain't doing nothing today. So I'm like, I'm out of it. I'm in surgery and they couldn't figure out what the problem was, but they went ahead and did the surgery anyway. Came out of surgery, they told me. Of course, the dramatic me started crying all over again. I'm like, so if you... If y'all didn't see where the problem is, what did y'all fix? And they were like, you know, we'll just check it and we'll go from there. And, um, you know, I had, I had got some more opinions about the cardiac ablation. And I kind of felt like it was a second chance for me because, you know, I was having so much. The AFib drains you. Once your heart goes into AFib, you feel like, Like, I feel like everything is just pulling down, and you're tired, and you just want to lay down. Like, everything is just pulling. So, I'm like, okay. I got the ablation, and I haven't been in the hospital since. So, October 2020, from that point forward, I have not been in the hospital I haven't really had any AFib problems. My heart hasn't been an AFib. Now, if I get upset, it might try to go an AFib, but it, I guess wherever they birthed it, the tooth, like wherever they cut it off at, it won't allow it to go in. So, the cardiac ablation helped me a whole lot. I am so grateful that I decided to get it because I don't know how I would have dealt with, um, I don't know, maybe... It was getting worse, so that's why it was lasting so long the last time the AFib came. But I'm grateful that I was able to get the surgery done. With that being said, I just want to tell people, before, you know, back when I was going through all of that, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. And it looked as if, you know, everything was just like, going wrong for me so I didn't have any hope I wanted to live for my children I wanted to be here with my husband I wanted to go old with him but at times during that process I felt like 
I'm probably not going to make it. And I'm just happy now that I can look back and I can tell somebody who may be going through what I'm going through, listen, don't give up. Because you never know what God has planned for you. You never know what what's going to happen down the line. And had I would have gave up and just, you know, gave up a long time ago, I wouldn't be here today to say I'm better. Like, I'm not 100% better, but I'm able to live a normal life now. Like, I'm able to do a little more. I'm not struggling how I was with having to deal with the AFib all the time. And AFib come and go as it please. Like, I can be an AFib right now, and then it'll go away. And then tomorrow it'll come and it'll stay for hours. And it'll go away. So, it's a lot. But, I'm happy that the cardiac ablation worked for me. Um, and I, I would advise people, if you have, if your doctor prescribes something like, if your doctor say, hey, we want to do this surgery, blah, 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 and you feel like, you know, it's not, it doesn't sound good to you, this may sound crazy, but going on Instagram and looking up what it is that they want to do is better than going on Google because Google sometimes have the worst. And they take it to the extreme. As soon as you look it up, it's like, <laughs> you're dying. And it's like, no, uh-uh, no. But a lot of people on Instagram have really great stories. And a lot of people share their stories, you know, on platforms like that because people go and look for you know information and um i look at instagram and i see a lot of different people who share their stories and how it helped them so i'm grateful that that worked out for me so we have some questions and i kind of just want to go over them um my first question that i received was how did you feel or how was it when you first found out you had scleroderma? Um, and I think I talked about this a little earlier. When I first found out I was at Temple, they gave me a booklet. And I looked it up and um, I really didn't like affect me because I really wasn't. I, mean, just, I was just like, oh my God, I'm not even going to deal with it right now. And that was in the beginning of February. So I didn't see another doctor again until maybe September or October of that year. Um, and I really, like, I didn't really, like, it really wasn't, like, sad until I started really learning and understanding as the progression went on. Like, after June, I would say the progression started picking up really bad. So I was diagnosed in February, and then June, like, everything just started, like, I was just, like, couldn't breathe and couldn't, you know, my hands started, you know, becoming tight. The skin was, like, really, really tight, and everything was just be starting, starting to become um, really bad for me. So after then, that's I think that's when the shock came in, like, I started seeing stuff. I started learning because I was going to a doctor when they didn't know about scleroderma, so they sent me to, like, a specialist. 
out in Pittsburgh and it just wasn't a good experience. They did a couple of things like took x-rays in my hand and they kind of explained to me what scleroderma was, but I wasn't there long enough to really get the full effect. But once I sat down and understood what the condition was and um, what effects it had on me, and then it was like I kind of like broke down and was really sad, like thinking about, you know, am I going to live? Is this going to affect, you know, my children in the long run? My biggest concern was like if I can pass this down to my children. So um, it became a little, a lot. It became a lot when I first really sat down and thought about, okay, this is what I have. This is what all these problems is, and I have to take care of it. So I guess that would, that would be how I felt about when I found out I had scleroderma. Um, the next question was, do you have to take a lot of medicine because of this? And if so, how many do you have to take a day? Um, I think I talked about my medicine before. When I first started, um, after the doctor put me on all the right medicines, I was taking about 19 pills um, in the morning and then about 6 at night. Now, currently, I'm taking 10 pills in the morning, 4 pills at night, and then I take one for just pain as needed. <clears throat> and um, like I told y'all before, due to me taking one of the medications, which is a trial medication, I have to do uh, a birth control, so I get that every three months. But other than that, 10 pills in the morning, <clears throat> 4 pills at night, and 1 for just pain. Yeah. Um, the next question was, a lot of people with chronic autoimmune issues face a lot of depression due to how this debility in the disease can be on a daily basis. How do you push through each day? If you suffer with depression, what was your motivation to push through and keep going? Um, I think that depression was one of my biggest things. That, that was the reason for me starting this podcast. Um, being in the house, being in the hospital. Let me start with the hospital first. Going to a hospital where they can't just take blood and punch on the machine and figure out what's wrong with you. They really have to do some work. It's a lot on a nurse. And then, you know, with them working long hours, it's a lot. And they take it out on you. When I go to the hospital, a normal, typical, like, Oh, I have an emergency. I'm not feeling well. I feel like something's wrong. Let me go to the emergency room. <laughs> the moment I get there and I explain to them what I have and what I have going on, I will say to them, you know, I'm a hard stick, but most of the time they get me in my left arm. There's a small vein right there. And this is what they usually get me. The nurses, they get upset because now I told them that I'm a hard stick. So they're already upset now. And then they know this is going to be a lot of work. And they say, okay, well, let me call somebody who can, you know, who works with people that got heart sick. And then all these people come in and take their turns and they try to stick you and they poke you. And they get frustrated because they have other people that's coming in. And then they want to try and try. And then after a while, it's like, okay, look, let's take a break. Because not only does 
and frustrate them, but it frustrates you as a patient also. And most hospitals have a lot going on. So when you're there and you're going through whatever it is that you're going through and you just want help or you just want to feel better and you got a nurse that's like just nasty, it takes over. Like you, you just, you just say it. And on top of that, you come home to be stuck in a bed or, you know, in a room. Because after you come home from the hospital, they didn't poach you, did all these surgeries and everything. You just want to come home, relax, put your legs up, and kind of just, you know, get yourself back together. For me, it takes a lot. For me, once I'm in the hospital and I'm there for a while and I come home, it takes a lot for me to come home and say, you know what, I feel better, let me get up. It takes a long time. So my kids are in school, my husband's at work, you know, I have no one to be there. So it's like your mind is just open. You have all this space to think and, you know, what if this happened? And then sometimes for me, when I go to the hospital, I don't get the help that I need. So I come home with the same problems that I went to the hospital with. So depression for me is a big thing. I signed up for counseling. But when counseling, it's hard to explain to somebody who, like when people look at me, they don't see what I go through. They don't see the pain. They don't see all that. They just see me. So when I say to somebody, like, I'm really, really tired, and it's like, okay, well, we have therapy. And I go into therapy, and I talk about the same things that I talked about last week because I have nothing else going on with my life. The same thing that I was dealing with last week, I'm going to be dealing with this week and the week after and the week after. For me, therapy worked for a little bit, but then it wasn't, it wasn't good for me because it was just like I was repeating what I went through the whole week to only go through it again the next week and repeat it again. So I feel like depression is a big thing because you worry about, okay, I'm a lot on this person. I have this going on. I have that going on. I'm an inconvenience to this person. I'm an inconvenience to that. I can't do this. I can't do that. A lot of times I stress about you know, only if I was able to get up and do this by myself, it would take away from having to ask for help or having to depend on people to do for me. When you, if I was, I feel like if I was born with this disease or if I would have had it at a really young age and grew up with it, it probably wouldn't be so depressing because this, that would have been the only life I knew. But because I had a life before the disease, I feel like everything was, um, you know, slipping away from me. Like I feel like my life that I had the going to work, meeting new people, having a conversation like the, just a good morning. You know, you ever just walk past somebody and they say, good morning. And you're like, hi, good morning. And your whole spirit just changed. For people like me now, you don't get that. You don't get that moment. You don't get to go and somebody say, "Oh, I love your hair," and you just feel like 
Yes, I'm killing it. Like, you know, you don't get to have those little moments that you would have had if you were working or if you were able to just go to the store by yourself. Or So I would say what pushed me to come out of the depression is because I have children who are looking at me. Being depressed, being sad, it starts to trickle down to the people that's in your life. Like if I'm always sad and I'm always in the bed, you know, crying, frustrating, that has a strong effect on my children. And for me, I was able to see it firsthand with my youngest son. So as I'm sitting here crying, upset because I can't do these things, he see me and then he starts to think, well, if I was home with my mom, I'll be able to help her. She can do these things. It becomes bigger than just me. I was so depressed that I was just like, I have to find something. I have to be able to show my kids, like, you know, I'm not well, but I can push through this and, you know, just be better. So when I when I was in my bed one day, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to find a support group. I'm going to get up. I'm going to do something. And I kept saying, I want to do. I want to do something. I want to be involved in something. And my husband was like, well, Why don't you just start a podcast? Tell people. Explain to them what you've been through and how, you know, you did these things and it helped you. How, yeah, you were feeling down, you were feeling depressed, but, you know, these things started to change for you. And it helped. And um, once I thought about it, I was like, oh, yeah. But then I was nervous about everything else. And, you know, my mind just was like, oh, you can't do this. You're not, you, you know, people don't understand you when you talk. You mumble, you you sound like you, it just it was a lot. So um, I would say you know depression is is a big thing, and if you don't have the correct you no know, support system, it can really drag you down. I hope that answered the question. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of where what kept me going, and that's what motivated me just to be able to show my children that um it's more to life you know what i mean like i can come out of this because i didn't want to see them have to go through that okay so we have one more question um the question was what progression do you see in yourself as far as now versus when you were diagnosed and started to develop symptoms um i would say confidence confidence because when I first was diagnosed I was very confident before the diagnosis I was the diagnosis I was confident you know there was nothing nobody could tell me I was I was I was me um after being diagnosed and having a skin color change that kind of took me back because I was always nervous about what people were saying like is that a disease? Like, what is that? Was it a rash? And, um, you know, like I said, I had it on my face just a little bit. But then once it got all over my chest, it was noticeable to just, even little kids would ask, what, what is that on her chest? And they would ask their mom that question or whatever parent was there. And that kind of knocked me back. Um, 
with the breathing. I used to be a talker. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I, I was, I, that's just who I am. I talk. I love to just be around people. But when I got diagnosed and I started having the breathing issues with the lung, a lot of people always like, what? What did you say? I can't understand you. And that was another pushback for me because I was embarrassed. Like, imagine having a conversation and somebody has their face turned up and they're like, what? I don't even understand what you're saying. And you're like, there's no other way I can say it. You know, for a long time, I would have to, I would say things to people. And um, my like my kids and my husband would have to translate to people. Like, oh, she said that you have, you know, this or how much of that, you know. So that was another pushback um, with my hands. My skin got really, really tight, so my fingers were just shrink. And that stopped me from being able to do my hair. And that was another pushback because I didn't have any females around that could say, I'll do your hair for you. So I had to teach my husband how to do it. And then be okay with it when he does it. So that was another pushback because if I didn't like it, if I didn't like the hairstyle, if I didn't like the ponytail, you know, I had to just, you know, kind of almost deal with it. You know, he would try his hardest to make it right. But he had to learn. This was new for him now. Um, and, you know, sometimes I would, I would put on makeup. You know, if I felt special, I would put on makeup and those things I wouldn't, I wasn't able to do. So I went through a lot of, when I see people, I was just like, if I was in a car, I would sit back. People would speak to me and because I'm so focused on trying to just not be seen, it's like, hey, and I don't speak back. And then people would think that I'm rude. Um... You know, with my skin, everything hurts. Like, I can't, um, like, I can't wear socks on my feet because if I put socks on, they hurt really bad. Um, last Saturday was my grandma's um, 70th birthday, and I just wanted, I don't know why, I just wanted to try stockings. I didn't need stockings with the outfit, but I wanted to try stockings, and I put the stockings on, and I put my boots on, and... The stockings were like really, you know, loose and everything. But it made it hurt my face so bad that I had to, you know, come home and take them off and my feet were sore. Um, any type of tight clothing will leave marks and it will um and like in the beginning of my scleroma, the marks would turn into like like it was like say for example, I put a brow on. The brow wasn't tight, but because I had it on on the skin, it would sit on the skin and then once I go to take it off the skin will come off so now I have this pain this burning sensation so I will wear loose clothes or bigger clothes so that was another pushback because now we're out I'm comfortable but I don't look how I'm not dressed up like everybody else my hair is not how I would want it to be you know I don't have any makeup on you know I didn't wear makeup all the time but when I wanted to get cute, if I wanted to go to a competition or something, that's what I would do. So all of these things added up, broke me down. I wasn't confident. You know, I wasn't, you know, 
I didn't feel like when I walk out in the street, oh, hi. I just wasn't, that wasn't me. So that caused a lot of problems in my life. And, you know, I felt like I wasn't making friends because people were probably like, well, I spoke to her and she didn't even speak back. Or, you know, um, but I will say now, I tend to, I had to talk with myself um, after I got my surgery, my cardiac ablation. And I said, I kept saying, this is going to be my second chance in life. Um, after I talked to my doctor and he said that um, we're going to do the surgery, I explained to my kids what it was. And we all agreed, you know, this is going to be your second chance in life. I told myself, you have to, nobody's going to make you feel the way you want to feel. You have to make yourself feel that way. Now, you know, I don't, nothing changed but my attitude. I still have the skin. I still can't fix my hair. I still can't put on makeup. I still can't do these things, but my confidence is there. The confidence, like, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to put these pants on. You know, I got these favorite pants that I wear all the time. I put those pants on, can't nobody tell me nothing. You know, so I was saying, as far as the progression, the confidence, I don't think anything physically changed. You know, I am doing a little bit more as far as being able to do little things that I couldn't do by myself. Like I'm pushing myself. And that's something the confidence makes me push myself to say, you know what? I'm done with the shower chair. I'm not. I am not gonna use a shower chair. I, sh- I threw my shower chair out um, the beginning of the, the new year, or maybe I did it a little before the New Year's, maybe like right before Christmas or something. I threw my shower chair out, and I told myself, I will not, I will not take another shower and have a shower chair in my bathroom. That's the confidence. Yes, I have my moments where I can't breathe. You know, sometimes I have to take it slower. Sometimes. You know, like I said, taking a shower is a, is, a, is a whole big thing. So I had to have that confidence saying, you know what, Tasha, you're going to get up. You're going to go in that bathroom. You're going to take your time. You're going to brush your teeth. Everything you got to do first, sit down, take a break. You're going to get in that shower. You're going to get washed. You're going to get out. And even if you got to sit on that bed for 30 minutes before you even think about putting some clothes on, that's what you're going to do. I just had to push myself to say, you have to want to do better. Like, even with just talking, my voice is the same. I still sound the way I sound five years ago. I still sound the way I sound six years ago. But now that I have the confidence, I'm able to say, you know what? Regardless of how people say, well, regardless of how whatever people say about my voice, I'm going to get in this podcast, and I'm going to speak, and I'm going to help somebody else. I'm going to make sure that I share somebody else's story to help somebody else. That was That's what it is. I feel like the only profession I have is confidence and pushing myself to say, this is what I want and this is what I have to do to make it happen. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me. I hope that you enjoyed this episode about my journey. I hope that I was able to help someone and I hope that I answered all the questions um, correctly. Um, I really do appreciate you guys listening in and I hope you guys have a wonderful night. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. TTR The Till Room 
will be a bi-weekly podcast on Wednesdays. You will get all the information you need for the next guest and any events that we are having. So if you know someone who has scleroderma or someone who wants to learn about scleroderma, please share our information. You can find us on Instagram at the till underscore room or you can email us at the till room 22 at yahoo.com this is your host latasha m stay blessed stay safe and stay positive